Well, we have arrived this morning at the finale of a five-week series concerning the Messiah, seeing Jesus and the covenants and promises of redemption all throughout Scripture. And in this series, I've been using a, uh, an image that I created to not bring confusion, but hopefully to bring clarity. And I hope that each week that's gone by, this has made more and more sense. And as I said when we first started this, that it, th- this thing looks crazy when you don't know what this is. This, this looks wild. What is this chart? I'm not really much of a chart maker. No, I do like maps, but charts is another thing. Uh, but all this is is a representation to us of how God is moving all of human history. That's all that this is. He began at creation, and where is it going? At the end, new creation. Okay, the first covenant head was Adam, and guess what? There's a last Adam to come, right? Remember that God's plan is a singular, straight path to the end. Can anything happen along this path, along the course of human history, to interrupt God's plans? The answer to that is emphatically no, right? Nothing can interrupt God's plans, and why is that? How could that possibly be? Because he is a sovereign God who does what he intends. Isn't that right? God is a sovereign God who does exactly as he intends and no one can stop him from doing what he intends to do the way he intends to do it. That's a good God and that is our God. That is the God that has brought salvation because things go from creation to fall and that's bad news. Only if God didn't have a plan, that'd be bad news, right? But God does have a plan, doesn't he? And he's seeing that plan through. The last Adam came, we know that's Jesus. He brought about redemption And then the new creation is yet coming, isn't it? You know there's a new creation coming. Do you believe it? That new creation is coming. And so there is hope for us. There is hope laid up for us. There is an inheritance laid up for us. And we just have a foretaste of it now. It's amazing. All that God has done for us. Okay, so then why this giant triangle? The triangle is simply meant to show that at its widest part, the way that God reveals his plan to us is vague at first. There are shadows, there are types, there are figures of things at first, but then as time goes on and as the covenants progress, God is narrowing that down and he is showing us more specifics as time goes on, okay? And as we've said, the covenants serve as the backbone to the storyline of scripture. Have you seen that so far? Have you seen how the covenants serve as the backbone of the storyline of Scripture? Okay? And what's pretty amazing, though, is that most of the covenants come to us in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, right? That's pretty amazing. And then the covenant with David comes about, and the covenant with David takes kind of a a prominent place throughout much of what we read, and we showed how the Psalms take the shape of the rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom, right? pointing towards that great kingdom to come. And that's certainly true, and that's certainly what's happening. But as time goes on, God is revealing to us more and more about what he's doing. God's plan never changes, but the way in which he reveals that plan to us does change. It's not new information, right? But it is more specific information, okay? That is, the information is not something brand new. It's not a brand new idea God is revealing. It's just that it's greater specifics on a previously revealed concept, right? Such as Genesis 3.15. 
there's going to be someone come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be from the seed of the woman. And again, on Isaiah's suffering servant is far more specific, not about a new individual, but about more specifics regarding that individual that's already been promised, right? Okay, so that's what we see happening and that's our crazy chart, okay? Uh, what I'd like to do uh, this morning and, and uh, where we've been coming from is, is each of the five weeks, we've been covering the covenant heads. And if, if I say covenant head and you don't know what that means at this point, um, then, then that connection really hasn't been made, has it? That they, these covenant heads are with each covenant, that each covenant has a covenant head figure, okay, right? Uh, in the beginning, Adam and Noah, confirmation of the covenant with Adam was in Noah. And then we had Abraham as a covenant head. And then next we have Moses and Israel, the covenant with Moses and Israel. And uh, then we have David, who we talked about last week. And this week we have a new covenant head to talk about and a new covenant to talk about. And that's super exciting because who are we talking about today? Jesus. I told Sam, because I, I, whenever, we, whenever we meet uh, in the morning, the elders, we meet and I, I go over kind of a, a super short view of, uh, sometimes it's longer than others, wouldn't you guess? But some, I go over like all that's going to be covered so that we can pray for the church according to the sermon, right? According to the text. And I told Sam, I said, well, I'm talking about Jesus today. And that's, that's as much as a, a summary of I can get. Actually, I gave several minutes more, but I could have stopped right there because who is the covenant head figure that we're talking about in the new covenant? Jesus. And I hope that you see that even though it's, it's basic, isn't it so basic to say the whole Bible speaks of Jesus? Isn't that basic? You should know that. But I hope that saying that now, it means so much more. Not only does the whole Bible speak of Jesus, and in a way, I, I won't say not only, but the Bible doesn't speak about Jesus in, in an allegorical fashion that we're trying to find Jesus everywhere. Like every little story is about Jesus. Well, that's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that the entire Bible has been preparing us for Jesus all along. He is the one to come. God promised he was going to send him, and he finally has come, right? And, and what do we celebrate? What's that holiday there? That is what Christmas is about, right? The sending of that promised one to achieve redemption. Okay, but, but it's not all done yet, okay? That's why, that's why we're still here in this room, and that's why a bunch of people are sick, and that's why we have heartache issues, and that's why we have problems. That's why there's the messiness of the world, that although we belong to the kingdom because the kingdom has been begun, started, but the kingdom has not been consummated, right? But once it is, that's when the reality hits that there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more suffering, and the, the presence of God is here with us forever. So where are we now? We're in that in-between, right? Okay, so what I want to do this morning is I, I just want to do a uh, very brief uh, summary of each of the covenants. Uh, very brief, okay? And I'm going to give you these passages as we go through. These are my select passages of the many that we've used. But uh, I just want to make it really clear that each of these covenants is anticipating, purposefully anticipating Jesus, okay? I just want you to see it. Now that we've gone through it over these last several weeks, let's just see it uh, in the snapshot view. Adam and Noah. You remember Genesis 3.15? I just referenced it for you, so I'm going to skip that one for now. And then we have Genesis 9, and this is the covenant with Noah. Just remember what God's covenant with Noah was. It says, 
Beginning in verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Who are the offspring after Noah? Think about it. It's everybody. It's everybody. There, there is nobody else, okay? I establish my covenant with you and all your offspring after you. So that includes who? I mean, it includes you. There is a, and includes also, it, it, it's extended here because he says, and, verse 10, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, the beasts of the earth, as many came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. Oh, so God has established a covenant not only with people, but with animals. And it, it, it continues farther. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the sign of that covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. This is the rainbow, that it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth itself. So God has made a covenant with Noah and his offspring after him. That's all people. And then the animals and then the earth itself. God makes a promise to the earth itself. This is a big promise, don't, wouldn't you think? I mean, how much bigger can it get? God has made a promise to all people, all living things, and the earth itself that he's going to do something. Okay? Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so there's this big promise at first that's, that's very large and vague. This is a very vague promise, isn't it? And it's, we don't quite understand what all God's going to do. But then when it gets to Abraham, right, who was who his father and his grandfather, their whole family were pagans, by the way, if you didn't know that about Abram. Um, it's not as though he was a God-fearer and God said, oh, thank you for being a faithful God-fearing man. I'm going to bless you. Uh, his entire family was pagans. Uh, Joshua 24.2 tells us that, okay? So God interjects himself into the life of Abram and calls him and says, I'm going to do something special with you and your descendants after you. The direct descendants that are of note are Abraham, or excuse me, are uh, Isaac and Jacob. And so uh, God is going to bring that blessing of Abraham through his family line. Okay? And in that family line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? In his family line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so that's associated with what covenant that was already given through Adam and Noah, right? God is doing something big here. It's not a small thing that God's doing with a small group of people. It's a big thing that God's doing with a big group of people, okay? This is what God is doing. Uh, Genesis 28, 13, we fast forward a little bit. And uh, this is Jacob. This is actually a story of Jacob's ladder. Remember that story? Uh, it says, and behold, the Lord stood above it and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of, uh, of your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So now it has narrowed yet again 
okay, to another person saying, now in you, I'm just, we're just tracing where the blessing is going to come from. We know that God is going to bring blessing, but where is this blessing going to come from? We already know from Genesis 3.15 that it's going to be from a figure that comes along that's the seed of the woman, which means a man, and he's going to crush the head of a serpent who is representative of enemies, generally speaking, um, but certainly the great serpent of old, Satan himself, right? Okay, so uh, we have this figure coming. We know a little bit more now about where he's coming from because God is tracking this, tracing it through our wonderful time we spent in the genealogies, if you remember that, right? Then we get to Moses and Israel. Exodus 6, uh, verses 2 through 8, and it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Remember that? That's El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard their groaning that the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, great acts of judgment. And here it is. Listen to this, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Do you see what God intends to do by his sovereign acts? He intends to make them see him and know him. That's what he intends. Remember how we talk so much about his great miraculous acts of deliverance? You say, oh, you're going to remember me. And he exalts himself over all the Egyptian gods, and that's what the ten plagues are in Egypt? Okay. So after that, um, we have the giving of the law, the establishment of the priesthood. Uh, God is giving them essentially a way to maintain his relationship with the people because the presence of God needs to be mediated, Right? The presence of God needs to be mediated. All right? And then we get to David. And it says of David, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16. And I'm going to read this. Listen to what it says. All I've done so far is remind you of the covenants God made, right? The covenant with Adam and Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses and Israel, and now with David. This is just a reminder of when we see all the covenants together, it gives us a different picture, doesn't it, in our minds. Now, the covenant with David that we covered last week, 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8, Now, therefore, thus says, uh, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make for you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, that's a lot of promises God just made in scripture, okay? But we actually didn't cover very much scripture there. But God made some big promises there, didn't he? God made some very significant promises. Is God going to be faithful to all his promises? That's the big question. God made a lot of promises. To who? To everyone. To some specific groups, to some specific people, to the earth itself, to all humanity, to the animals. God made a commitment to everything. Is God going to be faithful to his promises? Is he going to come through? That's the question. That's the question that the Old Testament wants us to feel. Because there are unfinished things, right? When we finish reading in the Old Testament, at least the arrangement of our Old Testament, we get to the end of the Minor Prophets, and it doesn't end so well, right? Things are left with an uneasy feeling. How are we to understand all of this Old Testament? Something is left undone. Intentionally so. Yes, that's right. So here's my summary of all of that. Ready? Adam and Eve, I'm going to start from Adam and Eve. I'm going to go all the way through, but I have it in just a couple of sentences. Ready? This is how I would summarize the whole situation. Adam and Eve's rebellion against God resulted in a curse on all humanity. Perfect life and fellowship with God in paradise was lost. However, because God does not forsake his steadfast love, he promised to send a man, that is the Messiah, who would come one day and destroy the enemy and restore life and fellowship with God. That's the beginning of it. And then we have the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and Israel, David. What are all these about? God already made some pretty big promises to do that, didn't he? Then what of all these other covenants? God's covenants with Abraham, that is Isaac and Jacob, Moses and Israel, David, establish two specific things for us. Number one, they establish the genealogical pathway of the Messiah and, two, a microcosm of God's salvation plan. Okay, I want to explain that. I put a lot of effort into that sentence. I want to explain it. God's covenants with Abraham, that is Isaac and Jacob, that's the family line, Moses and Israel and David established two things. One, the genealogical pathway of the Messiah. That's the best way I could figure how to say that. I think it makes sense. Because what God is doing is he is showing where the Messiah is going to come from. That's the genealogical pathway. God is showing us that Messiah is coming. We know at first, generally, it's going to come through the seed of a woman. That is, it's going to be a man, right? Uh, but where is this man going to come from? Over time, God tells us more specifically where the Messiah is going to come from, okay? So he's showing us, he's laying out this genealogical pathway to the Messiah, okay? So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and the, the Messiah, right? From the house of David, that's why he's born in Bethlehem, right? Okay, so that's the genealogical pathway, but it also, the, all these other covenants also do something else. They create, very significantly, a microcosm of God's salvation plan. You may or may not be familiar with what a microcosm is. Okay, so I have a definition for you. You ready? 
A microcosm is a community, a place, or a situation regarded as encapsulating in miniature the characteristic qualities or features of something larger. So it is a thing that captures in miniature greater realities than itself. And this is what all the covenants set in place through Israel do. They show us a lot of things to come in miniature. Okay? For example, the nation of Israel is known as God's son. There is a greater son of God coming, yes? It also shows us the kingdom of Israel, which is standing in place of the representative kingdom of God, right? Well, there's a better kingdom of God coming than the kingdom of Israel. I hope you agree with that, knowing what all Israel did and how they acted, right? All the kings, we've got a better king coming, don't we? We have a priesthood, we have a high priest, blood sacrifice and atonement. We have a better high priest coming, we have a better blood sacrifice coming, we have a better atonement coming. So do you see how in small scale, Israel, as they function, sets up a microcosm of all that is to come in God's salvation plan. God is doing something in miniature to show us what is to come. It's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of all that is to come while at the meantime mediating the very presence of God with a sinful people, right? The presence of God needed to be mediated. Why? Because the people are sinful. So they needed to deal with that somehow. Following that so far? They have the kings, greater king to come. They have the prophets, greater prophet to come. I mean, you could keep going, right? Everything set up is a microcosm of what's to come. I'll include here land. There's a better land to come, right? So the microcosm, it's not the, it, it is a real thing, but it's not the greatest thing to come, right? It is a real thing, but it's not the greatest thing to come. It's a shadow and not the substance. So we're left then in the Old Testament desiring a people who know God, who love God, and are perfectly obedient to him. We want the people of God to live in a land of paradise where they experience perfect fellowship with God and rest from their enemies forever. Why can't we just have that? that why can't we just have that? A people who know God, Right? Isn't that what God intended all of his revelations to be to them and all of his mighty acts and his works and his deliverance? You will know me. Why can't we just have people that know God? Unless you're unfamiliar with the history of Israel. And so when you read in your Old Testament and you're reading specifically in prophetic books or even in the histories of Israel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, uh, I mean, Judges, Joshua... I mean, you can pretty much go anywhere you want, but you're going to find rebellious people against God who reject their God and serve foreign gods. And we're saying, if these are the people of God, then what of the rest of the people of the earth, right? So where are the people of God? Where are the people after God's own heart? Where are the people who know him? We want those people. Where are the people who are perfectly obedient to him? Where is the perfect presence of God? Where is the perfect sacrifice? Where is a high priest who will do everything we need him to do? Where is a king who will reign righteously and only do what's good? And can he please live forever? 
everything we are left wanting in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. Everything. And the New Testament are the scriptures that reference what? What's testament mean? Covenant. The New Testament are those writings which are associated with the New Covenant. So when we reference our New Testament, we're referencing those, writers, those, those writings that are associated with the New Covenant. But it doesn't mean that the Old Testament says nothing about the covenant to come. The Old Testament actually tells us about this new and great covenant that is to come. Right? So I'll also say this. All the previous covenants and promises of redemption intentionally anticipate the establishment of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. That word intentionally should be bolded, highlighted, underlined, little stars next to it, whatever you do to write things down. Everything, all the previous covenants and promises of redemption intentionally anticipate the establishment of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. It is not as though God was establishing other covenants and he said, these are an end in themselves. This covenant is an end in itself. I'm going to leave that alone and I'll revisit that covenant later, but I'm going to go to another covenant for now, but don't worry, we'll come back to that one here in just a minute. But instead, there is actually a, 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 a singular line of God's plan that runs straight through all the covenants. That's what I've been trying to show you. God is doing something intentionally, leading us all to this great new covenant that's better than the old better. It is better. It is superior to the old. Okay? A couple of questions we might have at this point is, what has God promised and who are the inheritors of that promise? Those are big questions to ask. What has God promised and who are the inheritors of that promise or those promises? What has God promised and who's going to get it? Has God promised something for a particular people in a particular place and so only they get it? Or are all the promises I, found in, in, I find in all of the Bible meant for me? Well, you know that one's not true. When you read and you put yourself in the place of other biblical characters, do you know that that's not the right way to read the Bible? <laughs> that you, you do not become those characters because they served a purpose in real history and God had real plans for real individuals, okay? But there are grand promises made to all and there is a grand inheritance that God has promised to all, but we have to put an asterisk by it. And when we're wondering, what are those promises? What is this great inheritance? And who are the people that get it? Okay? And is, are all of our longings going to be fulfilled, by the way? Are we going to have those people who know God, who obey him, right? Who can be in his presence forever? Are we going to have perfect rest from all of our enemies forever? Are we going to get everything we ever wanted? Are we going to get it? Is it going to be ours? The answer is, let's find out. Okay, I want to compare two passages quickly, and then we're going to look at three different ways to understand the new covenant, okay? But before we do, Joshua 21, 43 through 45. I'm going to read this. I'd like for you to look at it in your Bible. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to that one. I'm going to have you turn to both of these, okay? But let's start in Joshua 21, because something is said here that if we don't quite understand it, it seems as though the Bible disagrees with itself. And I'll just ask you as you're turning there, does the Bible disagree with itself? Does the Bible contradict itself? Yes or no? 
Your answer cannot be kind of or I don't know, okay? The Bible does not contradict itself. If there are seeming contradictions, that's, that's our fault. We're not understanding things properly, okay? So if you get a hang-up, by the way, I'm just giving you time to turn there still. If you get a hang-up on something you think the Bible is contradictory to the nature of God, character of God, or with the Bible itself, uh, come see one of your elders, okay? And we will walk you through that and show you that the Bible is trustworthy and true and it does not contradict itself, okay? Joshua 21, beginning in verse 43, it says, thus says, uh, thus the Lord, this is a summary. What happens in the book of Joshua? It's conquest, remember? That's the people of Israel taking hold of the promised land, right? Isn't that what happens in Joshua? Everybody with me? So chapter 21, what's it say? Verse 43, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Verse 45, look at this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. And what's this last section say? All came to pass. All came to pass. This is after they took possession of the promised land. Fulfilled. Fulfilled. God promised it and he gave it. Fulfilled. All that God promised came to pass. He gave it to them. He promised he would. Here you go. And now they have rest from all their enemies. Do you, do you hear? Almost, we, we, we almost have that people in that place that we wanted. We have a people who, remember Joshua is going to say, choose this day whom you will serve. Remember that whole thing? Okay, that's right here. And so choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve the pagan God, the other, the foreign gods? Choose this day whom you will serve. And he says, well, I mean, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to serve Yahweh because we know who he is. But you serve who you want to serve, but it's not really much of an option here. I, I wouldn't choose the latter, okay? Let's serve the Lord and let's take possession of all he's given us and let's be thankful to God for him fulfilling all of his promises to us. He promised this land. He promised us rest. We have land. We have rest. And look at all these people we have to fill the land. We have people. We have land. We have rest. End of the story. But it's not the end of the story. Why? Because the main issue has yet to be dealt with, so it proves that you have a bunch of people, like the stars of the sky, dust of the earth, and you have land, land flowing with milk and honey, it's theirs. They have rest from all their enemies. It, all is done, everything's perfect, except one thing is not perfect definitely, and it's you. It's all the people. You are not perfect. You have a sin issue that has not been resolved. So no matter what God throws in your way, I'm messing it up. I can't keep all these good things of God. I mess it up. I'm the problem here. The people are the problem. It's not God. God is not the problem. The people and their sinfulness is the problem. So what's God going to do now? Well, now he's got to come up with a new plan, see? See, he had a plan to have a people named Israel who would inherit land and give them rest from all their enemies. And he promised that. That was God's plan, see? 
and he, and he finished that plan, and he was done, and he said, well, you guys messed that up. Um, I don't know. Give me a minute. Let me rethink and come up with a new plan. My new plan is to send a Redeemer, a Messiah, and a new covenant. Let, let's make that the new plan. No, that doesn't sound right at all, does it? Or could it be that God had this plan from the very beginning? That he would make these covenants and promises of redemption and that everything is pointing toward the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. See, he didn't have to come up with a new plan. This was his plan all along. God has had one plan all along and Israel can't mess it up. However much they tried. Do you know how much they tried actually when the Messiah did come? They kept trying. What'd they do? Killed the Messiah, murdered him. They really tried to mess it up, but God wouldn't have it. Isn't that right? You know that's right, right? It's okay to let me know that you agree with me. You, know I mean? you agree? Yes. Yeah, okay. All right, great. I'm excited about it. You can decide to get excited later. All right, Hebrews 11, okay? Hebrews 11 uh, says something a little different. So Joshua, so turn there, turn, turn to Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at verse 8, and we're going to start in verse 8. Now, in Joshua, what did it say? God gave them everything he promised. All came to pass, right? You, we read that. Okay, well, let's look at what the author of Hebrews says many years later. Does he look back on this and say, all God promised is done Nothing yet to come. What God promised them, they got. Let's just read. It's interesting to read it. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was received as an inheritance. That word inheritance is going to go a long way here this morning, okay? And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. The the land of promise is the inheritance. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs uh, with him of the same people. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What is that? Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, and she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore, from one man... And from him as good as dead were born the descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. There is actually very specifically another promise fulfilled. Isn't that how many God said there would be? And isn't that what the author of Hebrews says that there were? But he just said, and God did it, right? Okay. Just making sure you see what I see. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Do you see that? How can that be? That's a contradiction. At least I hope you initially see it as a contradiction, right? Because in other places, promises fulfilled. Everything God promised, he gave them. Here it says, these all died, not having received the things promised. What? Well, let's keep reading. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, is it a city or is it a land? What is it exactly? Can everybody fit in that city? That's a big city. What is he talking about? He's talking about a heavenly city that God has prepared for them that they were looking forward to that wasn't the land that they lived in. Because none of them received the things promised even though they lived in that land. Do you, are you seeing it? Now you might say, well, that was that generation. What about the later generations? Well, just go down to verse 39 in Hebrews 11. And the author of Hebrews doubles up on this position. Hebrews 11, verse 39, it says, now in speaking from Israel to the judges and David and the prophets, he says, all these, though commended through their faith, what's it say? Did not receive what was promised. What? Since God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So you're telling me that all these people that we're reading about in every situation that they were in where God delivered them so much and gave them land and gave them rest and gave them his very presence among them, you're telling me that they didn't receive anything that was promised? Well, that's where we have to say, well, what is actually meant here? Because in a sense, they did receive what was promised because Joshua said so. Would you agree? but did they receive what was truly meant by that promise? No. Now, you might say, well, what do you mean by meant? Okay, because did God intend to give them that land? Answer, yes. And did he give it to them? Yes. Did he intend for them to have rest from all their enemies? And did he give it to them? Yes. And so there is a fulfillment, right? But if all given to Israel and the structure of Israel is a microcosm of God's redemptive plan, then we see that there is actually something greater meant by these small realities, right? Sam covered this uh, when we are talking about Abraham, that the land functions, that the, the land given in this piece of geography on the planet is given, yes, to them, and it was given to them. God made a promise and he gave it to them, Okay. But then we start to have the land referenced over and over and over and over again. And you say, well, what about that land? What about that land? What about that land? Well, were they seeking a piece of geography? Or were they seeking a better country, which is a heavenly one? Did they recognize that they were strangers and exiles on the earth? On the earth. On the earth. Okay? They are strangers and exiles where? On the earth, on planet earth. I'm an exile no matter where I am. No matter what nation, no matter what place, no matter what piece of geography I find myself on planet earth, I am a stranger and an exile. How can that be? Because God has promised something better that has its foundations in heaven itself. And that is our inheritance. 
It's coming for us. It's been promised and God is faithful to his promises. Thank God for all that he's shown us. Thank God that he's shown us all the failures and thank God he's shown us what perfection is in Jesus Christ. That was all introduction. (laughs) Now we're moving to the new covenant. All right, now let's talk about these three ways. I do have some notes to get through this morning, so if you need to reposition yourself in your seat or something, now's time to do that. Go ahead and reposition yourself. We're going to be talking about this just for a little bit. I'm going to make it through my notes today. The new covenant, it's just too good. Is anyone bored? This isn't fun to you? Don't want to hear about this stuff? Okay, no one's strapped you down to your seat. Um, we are going to focus on here because there is just too much for us to pass by. We must speak of it, right? Okay. The promise of the new covenant is what we're going to look at first. And so we're going to look at the Old Testament and the promises that were made about the coming new covenant in the Old Testament, okay? Next, we're going to look at the newness of the new covenant. What makes the new covenant so new? What, what is new about the new covenant? Or is it just another covenant, okay? And then finally, and I think most profoundly, given that it's a mystery, we're going to look at the mystery of the new covenant, okay? So the promise of the new covenant, let's look at that first. I'm going to give you three uh, texts. First one being Isaiah 55, 3 through 5. There are three primary texts in your Old Testament. There are more, there are more, okay? But there are three primary texts in your Old Testament that speak of the coming new covenant. The first one, Isaiah 55, three through five. And it says, incline your ear, come to me here that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Okay, let me just make it all the way through. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for all the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. What is that nation? We don't know, they're not Israel. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So there are a few promises here. I'm not spending a lot of time on this one. Um, But a couple of things that we see that a new covenant is coming. Its basis is on the covenant with David. Do you see that? I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So the covenant has not been made yet. Do you see that? I will make with you. I will cut with you, right? Karat berit right? This is not, I will reestablish a previous covenant with you. I will make a new covenant with you. And this covenant will be an everlasting covenant. And it'll be based upon my steadfast, sure love for David, who's been long dead at this point. Okay. So we see that the new covenant has its foundations and what previous covenant? Covenant with David. Isn't that the whole, isn't that what we've been trying to see this whole time? Okay. So there it is. And by the way, also nations of unknown people will be called and they will come running because of the Lord. That's exciting because that's a description of you and me. Most of us. Okay. Next, uh, Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28. Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28. And I do want to read it. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. 
That, does that sound like a promise to you? Who's the promise made to? Israel. Promise made to Israel about land in Ezekiel, okay? Far removed from Joshua. Just want you to see that. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king shall be their king over them, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore. I'm going to read this, but I just want you to notice this sense of permanency in the description of these things. Okay? Listen. They shall not defile themselves anymore. Anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. What does that mean? They're not going to sin anymore. Whoa. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's very important. In Scripture, that's called the covenant formula. Okay? Whenever you hear those words, that's the covenant formula. That's God's covenant with a people. Okay? They are my people, I am their God. Or I am their God, they are my people. Whichever way, it's, that's the covenant formula. Keep your eyes and ears perked for that, because that's coming again here hopefully soon. They shall not defile themselves anymore. That's important at that point. Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them. At this time in history, is David alive? David is not alive, uh, so he can't possibly be their king. So what this is saying that that promised kingly or that promised king from, the, from David's line is going to come, right? By the way, oh, I wanted to make mention of this. Side note. That song we've been singing, right? Hope of the Ages. We sang that every other week throughout this uh, series together because I hoped that every week we sang it, it would be more and more clear what that was actually saying. That was my hope. And today was our last day of the series. I wanted to do it one more time. I hope that you've enjoyed that song. That song, that's a Sovereign Grace song. But very, very good. Okay, what are we talking about? My servant David shall be king over them. They shall have one shepherd. They shall walk, at, listen, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. So they're going to know God and they're going to be perfectly obedient to him and they're going to be sinless. They shall, uh, they and their children shall, uh, and their children's children shall dwell there for how long? Forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst for how long? Forevermore. And my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God. They will be my people, covenant formula again. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's repeated twice. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. When my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Has that happened yet? I want to, uh, we're, we're kind of pushing forward through time and, and through scripture, but I, I can't help but just make note of this one thing right here, the fulfillment of this, okay? As we're continuing on, if you're taking notes, write down Revelation 21, one through four. Revelation 21, one through four. I just want to show you that what's being spoken of in Ezekiel finds its fulfillment in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. 
when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore, forevermore. Okay, it says, I saw, this is Revelation. We, man, we are jumping, okay, all the way to the end. Uh, I, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. You got that in your timeline? Has that happened yet? That hadn't happened yet. Okay, and then I saw, I looked, and there was the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be their God. What's that? That's the covenant formula. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain nor anything. The former things have passed away. Okay. Now, this is all very significant. There's too, there's too much, okay? There's too much. I'm too excited about too many things, okay? Th this right here, and I'll say this and we'll move on from it, but in Scripture, the only thing in Scripture ever, uh, ever measured uh, dimensionally as a perfect cube is the Holy of Holies. You know this? Okay? It's uh, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. It's the only thing in scripture that's a perfect cube. And when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, guess what it measures? 20 cubit, no, it doesn't actually. <laughs> it measures 12,000 stadia, which is much bigger. It measures 12,000 stadia in a perfect cube. And then it continues on to say there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the sanctuary of God is in their midst forevermore. The city itself is the presence of God. That's exciting. It's only exciting if that's where you're going to live. Yeah? Okay. Let's go to the Jeremiah passage. Okay, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. This is probably the most critical New Covenant text found in the Old Testament, okay? So there's already so much being said about the New Covenant to come, isn't there? But look at what Jeremiah 31 says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, which means they're not here yet, at least at that time in writing. When I will make a new covenant with, the, with who? With who? This is, this is significant. I'm going to get to this point. But who is God going to make the new covenant with? the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, it does not say right here with the nations. It says with Israel and Judah. And who is Israel and Judah? That's the divided kingdom. That's northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Add them together and you got all of Israel. Okay, so it's just saying with the whole house of Israel, I'm going to make this covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. Unfortunate for all those people who don't belong to Israel is the reality, unless we understand this differently. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them into the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, by the way, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Oh, there it is. And no longer shall each one of them teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive them of their iniquity, they're sinless, and I will remember their sin no more. It's forgiven, atoned for. 
Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon, the stars by night, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. For how long? For how long? Forever. Thus says the Lord. If the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Can the heavens uh, and the foundations of the earth below be explored and measured? The answer, no. So is God going to cast them off? The answer, no. Okay. Uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go farther, the straight line to the hill of Garab, and then return to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and ashes and the fields as far as the, book, the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate to the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall be plucked up. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So you get the sense of permanency with all of that. Okay, uh, so here's how the new covenant will be unlike the old covenant. I just have them in points here for you. In verses 31 and 32, it says the, old, the new covenant's gonna be unlike the old covenant. In that, the law will be written within the people. Where was the law written for the people of Israel? Tablets of stone. And isn't it interesting that the scriptures tell us that hearts of stone are gonna be transformed into hearts of flesh. And that's where we're going to have the law of God, God now. Instead of on stone, it's now on flesh. The law of God will be within the people. Okay? But what law are we talking about? The Ten Commandments? If that's what you're saying, then that's not accurate. Okay? Because those commandments belong to a particular covenant. A covenant that the New Testament will tell us has passed away. Because there is now a new one. So that's interesting. What law is on our hearts then? All the people will know the Lord. Did all the people know the Lord then? No. But all the people will know the Lord in the new covenant. The sin of the people will be completely forgiven in the new covenant. Was the sin of the people completely forgiven in the old covenant? No. In, in fact, the New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls and goats was never intended to take away sins. Interesting. So then why did he do it? Almost like he was setting up a system for us to look back on and see what God would do in the future. And I would say that's exactly right. That's exactly what he was doing. Okay? The relationship between God and the people will never end. That's verses 35 and 37. Uh, and the people will live in the city of peace forever. For how long? Forever. So the newness of the new covenant is certainly anticipated. Let's go to that next. I'll go a little faster through this uh, next one if I haven't been going fast enough for you. The newness of the new covenant uh, what's so new about the new covenant? Well, uh, in Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that text we just looked at that talked about all the promises of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews quotes that saying that it has now come to pass. That's interesting. I'll look at that just for a moment. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. The covenant that he mediates is better. Not equivalent to better. Since it is acted in, excuse me, since it is enacted on better 
Promises. That's the big question. Remember, what promises has God made? What is the inheritance and who gets to receive that inheritance? Remember, that's the question. The new covenant is enacted on better promises than the promises of the old covenant. So the author goes on to explain the many ways that the new covenant is then superior to the old and that it was anticipated, it was realized, and all these implications. Uh, and then we get down to Hebrews 9.15. Okay, I wanted to finally get to this text, so take a breath with me for a second. Okay, Hebrews 9.15, look at what it says. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive, look at what it says, the promised eternal inheritance. What is that? What is the promised eternal inheritance? I thought it was descendants of Abraham and a piece of land on the earth. That's the promised eternal inheritance? Is that the best we got going on? The answer is no. But God was leading us to some better promises. I didn't, I didn't use those words, better promises. The scripture says better promises. Better promises. In fact, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that all those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. All those called receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay, uh, the questions I would have at this point is, what is the inheritance and what are the things promised? Who were these things promised to and when were these things promised? Those are kind of some of the questions that I would have at this point. Ephesians 1 answers pretty much all of those. Flip over there real quick, okay? We're so close to being done, you don't even know, okay? We are inches away, however you measure that in time, okay? We are almost there. but we can't get to the climax of the situation without this groundwork. So let me lay it, okay? Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. This is good. The questions I will remind you are this. What is the inheritance? What are the things promised? Who are the things promised to? And when were these things promised? Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Pause. But the Holy Spirit is not the inheritance. That's unbelievable. Do you know that when you uh, become a believer, it's because of the work of God already in you to soften your heart and to understand uh, who he is and to see him, right? Um, and that is the Holy Spirit of God in you sent to you as a gift from God, right? Are you thankful to have the Spirit at work living in your life? Uh, uh, there's a lot more coming. That's, that's just the guarantee of your inheritance, that's not your inheritance. That's just a promise that you get the inheritance. 
right? It's the stamp of approval that you are the one to receive that promised eternal inheritance. It's coming to you. You have the spirit now. Oh, you wait and see what's coming to you. You have an inheritance in store. It's coming for you. If you have the spirit of God in you, and the only way to have the spirit of God in you is by having faith in the name of Jesus Christ, confessing of your sin, having the wrath of God placed on Christ instead of yourself, having him as your high priest, as him as your, your new head, right? You are either found in Adam, sin and death, or you are found in Christ by faith, where sin and death are no more. It says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There is something coming for you, a great inheritance. So what is the mystery of this new covenant? Okay, we just have one text remaining. It's a little long, but it's only one text. Are you ready to go to it? We'll finish this out. Go to Ephesians 2. You're in Ephesians 1. You should be. Go to Ephesians 2. And begin in verse 11. See, we've already done so much back work here that when I read this, I, I think, I hope, it's my goal. It has been my goal that when I read this now, all the puzzle pieces are going to fall in place. What more do we have unanswered? That God made the promises to Israel. To Israel. So who are you? Who are you? Strangers of the promise. That's who you are. Well, let's see what scripture has to say about that. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, at that time you were separated from Christ. Listen, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, oh, some big change has happened. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who is us? Well, the only things being contrasted here are national ethnic Israel, and everybody else, Gentiles. And he's saying that sharp distinction that once existed between the two of you has been broken down. He himself is our peace. He has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of, of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and he preached peace to those who were far off, that is Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is 
those who are ethnically Jewish. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, how many structures are there in God's salvation plan? One. There is one structure in God's salvation plan. And that structure is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All things point to Jesus. In him, the whole structure joins together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Big things have just come into focus here. It's not as though God's previous covenants and promises are meaningless in the new covenant. That's, that's not true, is it? Instead, all the previous covenants and promises anticipated this new covenant, and they anticipated the inclusion of the Gentiles. This wasn't something new that God came up with. He knew this from the beginning. God had a plan from the beginning to include the Gentiles. This would mean, then, that the church is not a replacement of God's covenant people known as Israel, or even a, new rev- a renewed version of Israel, like Israel 2.0. No. The church has always been God's plan, unless you say that Jesus has not always been God's plan. The church has always been God's plan. That's his plan of redemption, to bring salvation through Jesus Christ in a new covenant people. That's his plan. So we can say then that the church is the intentional outworking of God's singular plan to bring about redemption through the Messiah in the new covenant to all the families of the earth. Because who is this salvation given to now? Everybody. All the families of the earth. Everybody. So through this offspring, Jesus, all the families of the earth are blessed. You see it? When did God make that promise? Genesis 3.15 is when he made that promise. Last section. Ooh, yeah, this is good. <laughs> Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 11. This is, this is the big picture, you know. This is it. This is, what, this is what God's been up to. What is God up to? This is what he's been up to. Ephesians 3, 1 through 11. For this reason, this is our last section of scripture, okay? So let's focus on this just for, just for a minute. For this reason, I, Paul, who was Jewish, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. What mystery? What was he talking about? What mystery? When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, that is the mystery, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Pause. This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was concealed. It was a mystery. It was was covered. Now, it wasn't something new that God came up with. He just didn't reveal it. You see? He just didn't tell us. We didn't know. 
But now we know. Paul has insight into the mystery. What is the mystery? What's this great mystery that we don't know about yet? But it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6, here it is. This is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's it. That's it. That's the, that's, that's the mystery. I thought God was doing this just for these people in this place. No, you, you misunderstand. See, it's for all of us. You thought God was just doing something for these? No, God had a bigger plan in mind. Now, to revert ourselves to the thinking that God is segregating these things out again is to misunderstand the fullness of the mystery, is what I would say, okay? God is saying that there are not two bodies, two buildings. He is saying there is one building, no dividing wall between them. There is one body. And who's in that body? Who's in that house? Well, we'll just keep reading. All we need to do is just look here. I don't know why I keep talking. Let's just look and see what it says. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. So why, by the way, was it Paul's ministry to preach to the Gentiles? Is because God gave him the revelation of the mystery that the, that the gospel belongs to them. So he's preaching to them. Now, did he neglect those who were also Jewish? And his heart ached for those who were Jewish, right? His heart was aching for them because they were Jewish, but they didn't have salvation. They were Jewish, but they were not inheritors of the promise. And so his heart was breaking for them because they didn't see it. They didn't get it. So to me, though I am the very least, grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. That's it. And that's probably what I should have called the whole series, right? The plan of the mystery hidden for ages. That's it. That's the whole thing. Who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the eternal places. This was, this, listen to verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you see, there was only ever one plan. There was only ever one thing going on. And in the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. God's plan has always been the church. Jesus then is the promised Messiah. Correct? He is that promised offspring of Abraham, yes? He is that great king to sit on David's throne, yes? He is the perfect Adam. He is the son of God. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the inheritor of all of God's blessings. He is the greater prophet than Moses. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the perfection of Israel. He is the son of David. He is the king of the eternal kingdom of God. He is the promised offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, bringing humanity back into fellowship with God. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God, the suffering servant who would make perfect atonement for sin. He is the sinless eternal high priest. 
He is the very word of God. He is life itself. He is almighty, faithful God. He is the covenant head of the new and final covenant. And you need to be found in him. And the only way to be found in him is through faith.